Well, good morning. We are so glad that you're here today and appreciate you taking the time to spend your Easter morning with us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we open his word this morning. Our gracious God and Savior, Father, it is so exciting to come on Easter morning and to sing praises to you, Lord, to glorify you through music. Lord, this, this morning certainly our hearts turn halfway around the world to those families, Father, that are mourning the death of our brothers and sisters in Christ who were slaughtered this week. And Father, we want to pray this morning, especially for these families, that you might minister great grace and mercy to them. May they know the sense of your presence, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for those who climbed out through windows and who escaped. Lord, it certainly could have been much worse in the horrible, uh, horribleness that it was. But Lord, thank you for some who were able to get out of their dorms and who escaped being killed. And so, Father, again, we just want to pray your grace upon those families today, our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Well, I have a question this morning for you. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in miracles? And probably most of us sitting here this morning would say, well, yeah, yeah, Dick, I, I believe in miracles. I really do. But let me give you a definition. By miracle, I mean those contrary to human possibility, events that have no natural explanation whatsoever. Do you really believe in those type of miracles? Amen. I remember as a group of freshmen in college, a young man from Quarryville, Pennsylvania, back in 1974, came to Liberty University. And uh, Paul Schuing was his name. And Paul came, and he had cancer, and uh, he really was not expected to live. And... Uh, he came and he shared with us the first week of college with about 20 freshmen there in the dorm that he was there. He didn't know if he'd make it through the semester. And we as a group of freshmen just began to pray every evening, probably a half hour every night. We circled around Paul and we prayed for him and we prayed for God's healing. Paul came home at Christmas time. He went to CHOP in Philadelphia. And the doctors did their test to see what was going on. And they came into the room afterwards and say, Mr. Shewing, we really don't understand this, but there is no sign of brain cancer anymore. It's a miracle. It really was. Now, I stood and I prayed over my dad for weeks upon weeks upon weeks and asked God for a miracle, and God took him home to heaven. So what made the difference? I was looking for a miracle, but it didn't happen that time. You know, I think we all struggle with those things from time to time. I think we all struggle sometimes with our faith. The resurrection of Jesus is the kind of miracle that we're talking about. No explanation for it whatsoever. In fact, when we really think about it, we're probably more comfortable with the crucifixion than we are the resurrection, aren't we? Because what do people wear around their necks? Crosses. Have you ever seen anybody wear an empty tomb around their neck? 
No, we wear crosses. Why don't we wear empty tombs or a stone that says, this is my Savior, the, to- the, st- the stone that was rolled away? Because sometimes I think we're more comfortable, as horrible was, was, as it was, the resurrection. We understand that more than we do the crucifixion more than we do the resurrection. So I ask the question, do you believe in miracles? Especially this, do you believe in the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of Christ? We would say yes, and then maybe we even question in the back of our mind, because if you would have been some of those disciples, Bartholomew and Peter and James and John and Matthew and and Simeon and those, you would have doubted. And of course, when we think of doubt, we automatically go to that man whose name is called what? Thomas. Doubting Thomas. For the disciples, their doubt was about the resurrection. And we're going to see that this morning. For us today, our doubt could be about many things. This week, one day, I just took about a half hour and I walked through the church and I walked through the school and I began to just ask our teachers and some administrators this question. Do you ever doubt? Do you ever doubt? These were some of the things. Does God really hear me when I pray? Am I really praying in God's will? I see God working in other people's life, but is he really working in my life? Is God really in control of all things? Is God really all-powerful? Does God exist? And it was interesting, the person who told me that, he said, now, pastor, he said, you're not going to believe when I tell you this. And he said, don't tell anybody else this. They might fire me tomorrow from here, he said. But sometimes this thought goes through my mind, does God really exist? If you loved me, God, why am I sick? If you loved me, God, why have you taken my loved one? I prayed for the healing and they still died. God, I prayed and you haven't healed my marriage. God is a parent. God, I've prayed for my kids who are far away from you and it doesn't seem like they're coming back. Do you hear me, God? And because of that, sometimes I doubt God. And probably if we were all honest, we all doubt from time to time. God, why did you take that baby? God, why I've prayed you haven't given me a husband. God, why, why, why haven't you helped me to get out of this financial? God, why haven't you provided me a job? And in those times when we've prayed and we don't see God moving, sometime doubt comes in to the recesses of our mind. Well, this morning we're going to meet that man who we know as Doubting Thomas. Interesting name. In Aramaic, it's the word Thomas, which means twin and Didymus. His other name in the Greek means twin. So it's like having somebody who they're twins and you name them twin. So that was sort of his name. Twin was his name. 
And we're going to meet him this morning. And the first time we meet him, and you can turn to um, John chapter 20, and we're going to be there in a few minutes. But if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to get there in a few minutes. But I want to share with you some things about Thomas. But unless you sit here this morning and you think, you know, is it only us who struggle with this doubt? I, I want to bring you just a few names from the history of Christianity, names that you might know who struggled with this doubt also. Men like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the great, it's called the Prince of Preachers. Listen to what it said. One of history's great preachers, Charles Spurgeon, was not only a master of communication's deep truths of Scripture, but also of engaging with his audience and relating their struggles. In his sermon, Desire of the Soul and Spiritual Darkness, he bluntly claimed, I think when a man says, I never doubt, it is quite time for us to doubt him. It is quite time for us to begin to say, Ah, oh, poor soul, I'm afraid you are not on the road at all, for if you were, you would see so many things in yourself and so much glory in Christ more than you deserve that you would be so much ashamed of yourself, even as to say, it is too good to be true. Or listen to what John Calvin said. John Calvin understood that doubt was part of the faith experience because human nature itself finds ideas about God and His goodness so outside of what we can understand. He says, For unbelief is so deeply rooted in our hearts, and we are so inclined to it that, that not without hard struggle is each one of us able to persuade himself of what all confess with what we confess with the mouth, namely that God is faithful. Even C.S. Lewis, the writer of the chronicles that we read and we watch the movies, he said, Faith in the sense in which I am here using the word is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist. These men, from time to time, struggled with doubt. The first time we meet Doubting Thomas is in John chapter 11. He's with Jesus and the other disciples, and Jesus gets word that Lazarus has passed away. And we know the story. He doesn't rush to, to the scene to raise him from the dead immediately. In fact, he waits four days. And so just before they're getting ready to go, there's this conversation. And let me just read it to you. It says, So then told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. He said, Lazarus is dead. There's a purpose. Let's go to him now. And then Thomas speaks up. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. And so the disciples have been talking and knowing if they went back to Bethany, there was a good chance that Jesus might be killed. 
And so they were trying to talk him in not to go back. After all, it's been four days. Lazarus is dead. There's nothing you can do, Jesus. And if you go, you're going to be killed. And what does Thomas immediately say? Listen, let's go with him, even though he's going to be killed. Some people have taken that statement and said that was just Thomas and, you know, he was doubting. But I, I think when we stop and look at that, he's saying, listen, let's just go. And if we're killed, we're killed. Sometimes I think Thomas gets a bad rap. But I think Thomas is strong here. He said, well, let's just go. I'm ready. I'm ready to give my life if that's what it cost. I'm ready. Everybody else thought it would be suicidal. In that brief statement, I think it reveals enorm enormous courage. Thomas agreed that the Jewish leaders would probably kill Jesus if he went back, but said, let's go. Events would soon prove him correct. But what can you say about this man? If they kill him, they can kill me too. It takes a real man to say that. It takes a man of courage, a man with love. I think he was a man of love, a man of loyalty. He, yes, he was a man of despair at times, but he was a man of sacrifice. He was totally committed to Jesus. And you know, sometimes we're like that. Man, sometimes I am so committed. Sometimes I am so bold to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the next time I am such a coward. You ever been there? You ever been there where, man, it's just like you are so bold and you talk to that waitress and you have the opportunity to share the gospel and the next time you're someplace, it's just like this fear swells up in me. You ever been there? Yeah. I wear this thing. We got it at a conference. I wear it now. It says these little words, be bold. Be bold. Be bold to share the gospel. But I'll admit, even as your pastor, sometimes fear grips me. And I doubt. Sometimes the old saying, I'm ready to attack hell with a squirt gun. And other times, there's no way. My life is doubting. The next time we meet Thomas is in John chapter 14, a portion of scripture that many know. Jesus is talking to his disciples in the upper room just hours from his crucifixion. And he says this statement here. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Now, he makes the statement, all the disciples are there around, had gathered and eaten the Last Supper, and Jesus begins to speak, and he's trying to comfort them because he knows in a matter of hours they'll be separated because of the crucifixion. And he says, listen, you know where I'm going. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And all the other disciples are sitting there listening and thinking, and Thomas has the guts to stand up and say, hey, or speak up and say, I'm not really sure where you're going, Jesus. That's what he says. He says, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Thomas shares with the others. He had been listening intently, but he says, I'm just not really sure. But he did have the guts to speak up and at least admit it. 
So the picture that we have of Thomas on the eve of the crucifixion is this. He's a brave man, intensely loyal, deeply committed to Jesus. If need be, he's ready to lay down his life. He's no doubt inclined to look somewhat on the dark side of life. He's completely honest about his doubts, about his confusions, about his fears. And he won't be satisfied with secondhand answers. That's who Thomas really is. And so we come to the crucifixion. Jesus, you know the story. He leaves the upper room. He goes out into the garden. He prays there. He says, Father, if there is any other way, then let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way that sinful man can be reconciled, God, then then let's do it. My flesh doesn't want to go through this. But Jesus obeyed the will of the Father, and we know that he went to the cross. And we've seen, many of you have watched The Passion of Christ. Many of you have seen that movie, and we've seen how it's reenacted. And the one thing those movies can't picture, though, they can show you the brutal crucifixion of Christ, but the one thing they can't show you is the spiritual exchange that took place there. They can't show you that your sin, every sin that you've ever committed, every sin that you will commit was placed upon Jesus Christ on that cross. He died in your place. He died in my place. Our sin was taken upon him. So that we might be given righteousness. I gave him sin. He gave me righteousness. Because see, we're born into this world sinners, separated from God. And because we're separated from God, we will die and spend an eternity in a Christless place called hell. But the good news, the good news is that Jesus bore your sin upon him. Jesus took every sin. And he died for them. And he was buried. All the other people who worship all kinds of other gods, whether it's Buddha or any other god, they're still dead. But our God is alive. That's the difference. That's the difference. And maybe you sit here this morning and you're not sure about this thing. Let me tell you this. Jesus is alive. He arose victorious from the grave for you and me so that we might be able to have victory over sin and death for eternity. That's the good news of the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. And in John chapter 20, I think sometimes we tend to forget what it was like on that first Easter morning. It's worth asking ourselves, If you had been there, would you have believed or would you have doubted? Maybe I can put it to you another way. I remember sitting or standing so many times at funerals here, funerals at the church in New Jersey. I remember standing at, you know, four grandparents and two two parents' funerals and thinking as... Man, wouldn't it be great if they would just get up? My janitor in New Jersey, I loved him. He used to say, listen, when you, Pastor, when I die, don't have my casket laid flat. He said, I really like it to be stood up. And he tell me this all the time. I like it to be stood up in the corner. He said, because if Jesus comes, I don't want to have to crawl over. I just want to be able to walk out. 
Now when he died, they wouldn't let me do that. But you know, how many times? I mean, think about it. What would you think? What would you think if somebody told you, hey, I was at a funeral today and the person got up and walked out of the casket. They came and ate lunch with us. They enjoyed their own meal. What would you say? Oh, get out of here. There's no way. You're crazy. No way that could happen. But that's exactly what's going to happen here. That's exactly what's going to happen. And so just as hard as it would be for us to believe, it was hard for them to believe also. And so look in, verse, in chapter 20, verse 1. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, you ought to underline this, Jesus is risen from the tomb. Is that what she said? No. What did she say? They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. And so immediately Mary comes back. Does she believe in the resurrection? I mean, after all, Jesus, he said it in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, in Matthew 17, 22, in Luke 9, 22. Listen, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. And after three days he will what? Rise again. Jesus had been preaching this all along the way. He'd been telling his disciples, everybody knew that Jesus was going to rise again. But what did Mary say? They've stolen the body. And with the disciples, Luke 24, 11, it says, they did not believe the woman because their words seemed to, her words seemed to them like Nonsense. The disciples said, that's nonsense. Come on. Get out of here, Mary. He didn't, he didn't. There must be some other thing. No one rises from the dead. Not after three days. After all, in Jewish customs, they believed that the spirit stayed around the body for three days. And then it was gone. So they're thinking, well, his spirit's already gone. He didn't rise from the dead. Listen, how, you know, not after hanging on a cross for six hours, not after a sword thrust in the side, not after being covered with a hundred pounds of burial spices and wrapped in burial cloths, not after being put in a sealed tomb. That's all nonsense, Mary. No way. Mark 16, 11. When they heard Jesus was alive, they did not believe. They didn't believe. The disciples didn't believe either. They doubted. You know, there's all kinds of theories about the resurrection. There's the stolen body theory. That's the oldest. That's that somebody came and stole his, his body. But, of course, we know that couldn't be true. The Roman guards were there. I mean, their life, if, if that body was taken, their life would be taken. There's the swoon theory. The swoon theory says that, you know, Jesus uh, wasn't completely dead when he was buried. He was just swooning. And, they, and when he was removed from the cross, the prognosis of his death was wrong. He was still alive. You know, they, they buried him. They, they wrapped him and all those things. And in those three days, his body got better. And he was able to roll the stone away. And so that's the theory. Or the drugged body theory. 
Uh, similar to the swoon theory. You know, the death on the cross was induced by drugs. There was a drug that was used back during that time that you could give to a mouse, and that mouse would go into sleep for two days, and then he would rise, that, he would, wouldn't rise up, but he would wake up and then be alive again. So there's the drug theory. There's the hypnosis theory that the vision of Christ could have been simply caused by post-hypnotic suggestions that Jesus hypnotized his disciples. And so after that, this hypnotism made them think that he was risen from the dead. There's the spiritual resurrection theory that God took his um, body and he appeared only in spirit. That was one that was believed by a lot of the early Christians. Paul dealt with that a little bit in the book of Galatians when he wrote to the Gnosticists. Um, Thomas, though it says, touched his wound. So we know it was his body. There's all these kinds of theories out there. Then there's Thomas. The first time Jesus appears to his disciples, look in verse 19. On the eve of that first day of the week, on that Sunday night, when the disciples were together with the doors locked, for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw it was Jesus. That Sunday night, though, Thomas was not there. I don't know. We don't really know where he was. But we do know this, that he still loved Jesus, that he cared for Jesus. They had a passion for Jesus. I love what John Ortenberg says. Those without passion in the heart, without anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and even at times without despair, be, believe only in the idea of a God and not God himself. Tremendous statement. And I believe that Thomas was off by himself just in despair and doubt, and miss that opportunity. And you know what? Listen, this morning, if you wish to call Thomas a doubter, please don't make him an unbeliever, though. Some have tried to place him in the company of skeptics. He does not belong there. Thomas is definitely not a skeptic or a rationalist. His doubt came from devotion to Christ. There's no doubt like the doubt of a broken heart. He had a broken heart. Eight days later, though, eight days later, look at verse 26. Verse 24 says, Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with his disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the, the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. Through the, door, the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Remember a week ago what Thomas told the disciples? A week later, Jesus shows up and he says the exact same thing that Thomas said a week earlier. Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out of your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. He said, see the nail holes, touch the nail holes, put your hand into my side. It's worth noting that Jesus knew all about Thomas's doubt. You know, when Jesus showed up, he didn't say, what's wrong with you, Thomas? You know, you've been doubting me all this time. Come on, get it together. 
Now, very lovingly, he knew the raging of his heart. He came just so Thomas could be sure. Jesus didn't put him down. He said, go ahead, go ahead, touch me. Go ahead, put your hand in the side. Go ahead, touch the nail prints. Here's the wonderful truth. Doubters are welcome at the empty tomb. Doubters are welcome at the empty tomb. Dealing with doubt. How do we deal with it? How do we deal with it? It's all right to doubt, but don't let your doubts keep you away. Come to the empty tomb and see, tomb and see for yourself. So what are some directions? And I want to give them to you as we close this morning. It's three things that I think are so important. First of all, affirm God is Lord. I want you to look at what Thomas says in verse 28. Thomas says unto him, my Lord and my God. You're going to go through doubts in this life. I've gone through doubts. Watching my dad struggle with cancer for two years and watching his body racked in pain. I walked out of the hospital one day and I just cried and I yelled, God, where are you? It's not fair. If there was ever a righteous man, it was Bob Vaughn and you've let him suffer. God, where are you? And I'll tell you, in that moment, I doubted God. I went home and took out my Bible and began to read and just sat there and read and read and prayed and prayed. And again, I came to that point where, God, I'm just going to affirm who you are. You are God. You are Lord. You are sovereign. I don't understand it. It's the thing that bugs me about the book of Job. I, I, I get irritated when I get to the end of the book. I want God to give Job an answer. What does he do? He gives him more kids. And he gives him this lesson on nature. And I'm saying, God, give him a reason. And he says, I am sovereign. I am in control. You'll never understand it this side of heaven. And one of the things when you begin to doubt God, you've got to come back and you've got to affirm his sovereignty. He is a sovereign God who is in control. He's never out of control. And that's what Simon does here. He, said, he says, my Lord, my God. He affirms who God is. He is my Lord. He is my sovereign God who I can trust in. The second thing is this. You only see a small piece of the puzzle. You only see a small piece of the picture. You don't see the whole plan. Take out your puzzle piece this morning. If you didn't get one, you can get one on the way out. They're in the back. Now, I want you to look at that puzzle piece, and I want somebody to tell me, what's the picture? Somebody want to take a guess? Nobody? Any guesses at all? A building. What somebody said, a beach scene. Big fish. Well, I knew Jack would say a big fish. Jack sees a big fish in everything, don't you, Jack? What is it? We don't know, do we? Because we just have this little piece of the puzzle. And you know, as we go through things in life, we don't understand. I, I don't understand. And you know what? You know, I told you, I walked out of the hospital that day. 
And I yelled at God and said, God, I don't understand this thing about my dad. I don't know why he's going through this. And man, God, where are you? And see, I only saw a small piece of the puzzle. I only saw a small piece of the puzzle. It wasn't until his funeral, when one of the ladies who took care of my dad came to the funeral, and at the funeral, she accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior. And if you would have asked my dad if two years of cancer was worth one woman going to heaven, he would have said it sure was. See, I I was only looking at the small piece of the puzzle. Sometimes we never understand this side of heaven. But someday we're going to get to heaven and we're going to see the whole picture. Let me show you the whole picture of that piece of the puzzle that you're standing. That's what it is. Now it makes sense. You said, oh, yeah, I see right where my piece goes, right? (laughs) Here, this is it. Here's what I want you to do. Listen, I want you to take this piece of puzzle. I want you to put it in your wallet, guys. Ladies, I want, you, I want you to put it in your pocketbook, and the next time you begin to doubt God, besides going to the Scripture, besides praying, I want you to take out that little piece of puzzle and remind yourself, I'm only seeing this piece of the puzzle. But God has a perfect picture that when I get to heaven, I'm going to understand. Amen. Keep it. Use it. Use it. Keep it in your pocket. If you... Didn't, if you There's a thousand pieces, so everybody could get another piece if you wanted. (laughs) But you know what? Listen, you only see a small part. Number three, don't doubt doubt. Don't doubt doubt. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Someone said doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. I love that statement. Doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. And it's true. The honest doubt may well lead to a greater growth in Christ. So don't give up when doubt rears its head. Instead, turn to prayer. Turn to scripture. Turn to a brother and sister in Christ who can encourage you. The Bible has over 3,000 promises. Open the word of God and see that he is a promise-keeping God. And then thirdly, doubt doesn't have to control your life. What can we learn from Thomas? Thomas was not just a doubter. Thomas was willing to put his life on the line. Thomas was willing to be killed. Thomas was willing to risk death. He was a man of passion. And as John Wurtenberg said, men with passion are those that end up doubting. I'm going to close with this statement this morning, and it's from the Word of God. I love the story back in the book of Matthew where a man brings his son to Jesus and that son is sick and he comes asking Jesus, heal heal him. And Jesus says, well, how long has he been sick? And he said, he's been like this since he was a child, since almost from birth. He's had these problems. And Jesus says to this father who's brought this sick son, he says, do you believe Do you believe? And the man says, Yes, I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. Yes, I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. And that's where we are this morning. Listen, we're a lot like Thomas. Yes, Lord, I believe. 
And we might even say, Lord, I believe in the resurrection this morning. I don't even doubt that. But it's those other things in my life that I pray for and I don't see them happening. And I begin to doubt you, God. It's in that time, in that quiet time of the night sometimes when we wake up in the middle of the night and we can't sleep. And Satan somehow puts those thoughts in our mind. Is there even really a God? Boy, if there was a God and you're one of his children, wouldn't he at least do this for you? Wouldn't he at least take care of you better? Wouldn't he provide this for you? Oh, listen to me this morning. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Maybe you've come this morning and you are struggling with this belief in Jesus Christ. You're struggling with where you're going to spend eternity. No one can remain neutral with this one. You can bring your doubts to the empty tomb, but you have to make a choice, don't you? And so maybe you've come into the service this morning. Maybe you came for just the breakfast. Maybe you came because your mother drugged you here today. Maybe you came because someone in your family member drugged you, and you're still trying to figure out why you're here. But you know, if you're here today, and you're not sure of an eternal home in heaven, today you have to make a choice. That choice is simple. It really is. It's will I accept Jesus or reject him? See, God loved you so much, as we said earlier in this message, that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sin, to be buried and to rise again the third day for you. So that all you had to do is this. Number one, admit you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and was buried and rose again for the third day for you and put your faith and trust in that alone to take you to heaven. You can be the best person in the world and still die and go to hell. Works won't get you there. Only a personal relationship with Christ. Can we bow our heads this morning with our heads bowed? Maybe you're here today and you say, Dick, if I died today, I'm not sure I'd go to heaven. I'm not sure. But I'd like to know for sure. Right there in the quietness of your seat with no one looking around, maybe you could pray a simple prayer. It's not the prayer that saves you. This prayer won't get you into heaven. It's the faith that saves you. Maybe you can pray and say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe that you were buried and you rose again the third day. And right now on this Easter morning, 2015, I am trusting in you and you alone. And your death and your burial and your resurrection for me, I'm trusting in that to take me to heaven. If you've prayed that today and you've really meant it from your heart and it was by faith, and the Bible says that you're on your way to an eternal home in heaven with God forever. I want to pray for you today as we close and we sing. Maybe you've prayed that prayer. I won't call you by name, but I do want to pray. Maybe you could just slip up your hand, slip it back down. No one's looking around and say, you know what, Dick, I prayed that today. I asked Jesus to be my Savior. 
for the first time. I know today that I'm on my way to heaven. Thank you. Thank you. At the end of the service, there'll be two of our elders will be down here in the front. And if you want to come and talk to them, maybe you're already a Christian, but maybe you're struggling with doubt today. I would encourage you to come and pray with them at the end of the service. They'll be down here to meet you. Father, thank you for the opportunity just to stop this morning to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a miracle it was. A miracle that was done specifically for us that sit here this morning. Lord, help us. We believe, but help our unbelief. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.